I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, everyone. Thank you all for Thanks coming. For it's really good to see you to all find here. Out more about um, London Review Bookshop I'm delighted events, to welcome Octavia Bright to talk about this ragged grace forward slash um, published events. by Canningate. As you probably know, Octavia so generous, like talking to other people about, about their work with their curiosity and attention. So it's a real delight, honestly, to be able to turn the tables and, and be able to have her on the other side of the, the questions and the microphone. Hot way. seat. And um, yeah. And I would therefore also like to thank Olivia Lang for coming and helping us do that. Thank you so much. Please say thank you and welcome to our guests. Thank you both very much. Cheers. <laughs> oh, it is such a pleasure to be here tonight. Um, I've known Octavia for a long time, but only in a very particular circumstance, which is having public conversations on stages, on Octavia's amazing podcast, Literary Friction, uh, on Zoom during the pandemic. So we've had all sorts of deep and ranging talks, but they've always been like this. And it is very, very nice to uh, turn the tables for once. So I got sent this um, beautiful, astounding, moving book um, in proof. And I've just read it for the second time over the weekend. And it's a really incredible book about addiction, about loss, about the complexities of freedom, the difficulties of freedom, the desire for escapism, the desire for fantasy versus the desire for reality and the stakes of all of that. Um, we're going to drill into all those different things, but Octavia is going to start by giving us a tiny reading. I am a tiny reading. Um, it's so wonderful to see all of you here. I'm still a little overwhelmed in a good way. Um, so this is, just to set this up, this comes in the first chapter. Um, I got sober and then I got really intense about meditation. It happens. Um, <laughs> so I started going to this meditation classes at the university, which were like two hour long on a Monday morning. Very, very intense. The other thing you should know before I read is that when I got sober, I got acquainted with a voice inside my head. He was very unpleasant. And I gave him the name Wormta, so he appears in this little passage. On arrival the next Monday, our teacher gave us each a custard cream. Judging by the reactions of the others in the room, it was only me who regularly ate biscuits for breakfast. They received theirs with reverence and curiosity, while I went to put mine straight in my mouth. Wait, said the teacher. Not yet, not yet, as I fumbled with the biscuit and felt a hot blush flourish over my nose and across my cheeks. Greedy guts, Wormtongue said. Close that big, messy mouth. Our teacher explained we were to try an exercise in meditative eating. Behold the biscuit, he said. Turn it over in your hands. Take in every millimetre, every ridge. What's the texture like and the smell? Breathe it in, go slow, there's no hurry. I was longing to eat it, but I did as he said, examined the sand-coloured rectangle with my eyes, my fingers, noticed the little cushion of sweet white cream sandwiched between the two outer biscuits, followed their raised swirling patterns, traced the words custard and cream with the tip of my forefinger. I breathed in its scent, sugary, sickly, and waited for permission to put it in my mouth. Take a taste of the biscuit, said our teacher. Pay attention to the texture and the flavour. I bit off a modest corner, enjoyed the crunch, then crumble of sweet and salty matter, 
and felt a tiny rush as the sugar melted on my tongue. Wormtongue said, more. More was what I wanted. I looked around at my fellow meditators and saw them all restrained and thoughtful, nibbling delicately. Eyes closed, brows furrowed into tiny erudite frowns, as though tasting a fine wine. They were absorbed in the moment, entirely consumed with biscuit tasting, which was the point of the exercise, presence through sensation. But Wormtongue and I were already lost to our craving for more. Furtive, I took another bite. I waited for an exquisite pleasure to invade my senses, like Proust and his interminable Madeleine. I found nothing but irritation. It appeared like a pressure behind the eyes, ran down my neck, arms, fingers, churned in my stomach. More. The disease of more, I'd heard it called, and knew that I had it. I wanted to be transported by the poetry of the custard cream to some higher plane of feeling and felt impatient for my own involuntary memory to strike and elevate me. My love of biscuits came from my father, who had once worked for a biscuit company, which meant, in my childhood, the house had been full of biscuits. My uncle even had two ginger tomcats called the Ginger Biscuits. There must be hundreds of dormant biscuit-related memories waiting to be triggered by the scent and flavour. But craving blots everything else out. Nothing makes me feel so mortal as the feeling of more. Powerless. I put the rest of the biscuit in my mouth. <laughs> I love that. And um, so one of the things I wanted to start with before we sort of talk about the, the subjects contained in the book, it covers a long period of your life. At what point did it start feeling like this was something you wanted to write? And what was that process of turning it from lived experience into book like? It started because I was trying to write something else. And that wasn't flowing. Um, and I had written, I mean, <laughs> as so often is the case. <laughs> exactly. I was basically working on something that was much more closely mapped onto my thesis research about hysteria. Mm. And I was trying to make this like very avant garde little book. And it was, I was having a great time. It was not very saleable. Um, mm. And the pandemic hit, and I couldn't get into libraries. And I was kind of treading water in my old research. And I think it's interesting how you can hide from yourself in your own work. Mm. And there were these two stories that needed to be told, which was that of my recovery and that of my father's illness. These two like cataclysmic life experiences as well mm. that, you know, when you go through something very massive, you think about it a lot. Mm. And I think thinking about something a lot, often you end up in a place where you might be able to then tell it to somebody else and you know so those were the stories that needed to be told but I was there treading water in hysteria and trying to make some mad story out of that um in the meantime published a few essays and journalism pieces about my dad and about my recovery and my agent very gently said you know this is flowing in mm. a different way like it's coming from somewhere else mm. and it feels very generous and very honest so how about you kind of try and she said, because she's very wise, uh, just write 3,000 words, don't stop, see what happens. And Did that basically first? became the first chapter or the first half of the first chapter. Um, and then from there, you know, it started with, with, with my recovery. And the more I thought about this question of recovery, I realized I had to tell my father's story as well because they were so intertwined. And, you mm. know, one of us is, is moving towards recovery and the other person is moving away from away from it really I mean you can't recover from Alzheimer's so the more I thought about it the more I thought you know we 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 we've sort of having this experience where we're crossing over and there's, there's this moment in the middle yeah. where we're sort of able to see each other a bit more squarely yeah. and then we keep going in our opposite sort of directions but actually where it ended up was then totally shifted again because of his death yeah. um and that was a very interesting thing because you can come up with a brilliant structure and a like, very clever way of tying things together and then life continues to happen. And mm. when you're writing about life, you're not actually in control, right? Like yeah, if you're absolutely. writing a novel, it's a different story. Yeah. And just, it, there's, loads, there's loads of different directions I want to go from that, but to just continue on that for a moment longer, 
What were you using? Did you have source material? Did you have diaries? Do you have an incredibly deft memory? I have actually the worst memory in the world, um, <laughs> as the people who know me in the room will attest to. I have very uh, non-linear memory. My memory works with vignettes, basically. Which and is what the book's composed of, these very sensual, yeah. very... I think the reaction I had to it when I first read it was the, the sensuality of those scenes was so intense. I was like, how are you doing this? That is my memory. Okay, that's... Yeah. But the linearity is not my memory. That's actually borrowed from my friend Billy, who's in the front row here, who has Thank a very you, excellent memory <laughs> and who I would call up and be like, oh, you remember that night with the biscuits? Was that, was that 2017 or was that 2019? I, <laughs> really, but I, I will yeah. refer some questions to Billy. Exactly. <laughs> um, it's, but I do keep journals. And so, yeah, the process of kind of Basically, when I was planning it and plotting it out, I had these several very vivid scenes that I knew I needed to write and I wanted to write. I didn't quite know how they hung together in linear time. So I went to Billy and I also went to my journals. But, the, the, the but whole, you did keep journals. I did, yeah. And yeah. the thing that is wild about the relationship between journal writing and writing for a readership is like, mm. I really think for the memoirist, journals are both like crucial and also a total trap mm. um, because you, well, I should speak really more personally because I think people do use journals differently. But, you know, when I'm writing in my journal, I'm not writing with a view to it being read by anybody. Mm. Um, I do go back to them sometimes and I do find them like very rich territory for creative work. But when it came to this and I knew I wanted to tell a story in a sort of chronological order, um, I spent a lot of time in my journals and that in itself was deeply uncomfortable yeah. because you meet yourself in this completely unmediated way. Um, and then it's very easy, I think, once you've expressed something in a particular way in writing to not be able to express it in a different way. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. You sort of inscribe it into language and then you can't re-inscribe it. Exactly. Very strange phenomenon. Super strange. So I had this thing of like marking up my journals and pulling out, you know, be very useful for making a timeline, which by the way, I, I went full homeland on the wall of our <laughs> apartment, post-it notes. And like, I didn't go as far as bits of string, but it was almost that intense. It was crazy. My partner would come home and just find like explosions on the floor and me being like, which year came first? <laughs> how old am I? I don't know what's happening, which is ironic because my father, this is what was happening to him in his Alzheimer's. And this mm. is one of the reasons why we we could meet each other because I, I'm not all there <laughs> a lot of the time. And, you know, it's mm. it, it was this interesting thing. Um, and actually being... But also feeling compelled to be there and feeling yeah. compelled to do that sort of reconstructive memory work. Yeah. And that maybe kind of driven by what was happening by him, maybe driven by what was... The, the sense that something had got buried or lost along the way. I think both, yeah, definitely. So sort of going on from that, I, I was really interested in, and you touched on it in the in the custard cream, that sort of the, the disease of more, but how you defined alcoholism at the time, the first time the psychiatrist said to you, I think you're an alcoholic, versus how you think about it now? Because, you know, I... I I grew up in an alcoholic family. I've written about alcoholism. I've thought about it a great deal over the years. But it felt to me like you got to a sort of spiritual or psychological dimension of what's going on with alcoholism that I was really struck by and really moved by. It wasn't just the, you know, this is the biochemistry of it or this is the prevailing theory of it. It was, it was something very deeply felt. So I wondered if you could just talk about how that changed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... I understood quite early on in my recovery that for me, alcohol was not the problem. It was just the thing that was in the way. Um, and the I, substance that happened to be available. Yeah, exactly. And that got me what I needed the quickest. But actually, um, it's the symptom, not the cause, is mm. kind of the language you learn in recovery meetings. But um, I, yeah, for some, I was lucky that that clicked very early on in recovery for me because I think it helped me stick with recovery. Mm. Um, and why? Why did I get it? No, why did it help you stick with recovery? Because I knew there was the something deeper something going deeper, on. Exactly. And which that, then interested you to find out. Yeah, right. it was an interesting thing. It wasn't, um, 
I could see that my that there had been other things before alcohol, like biscuits, um, and also stories and fantasy. And I think mm. because not all of those things are bad, you know, mm. heavy on the air quotes here, but like mm. I had a relationship to the idea of being an addict that didn't mean throwing the baby out with the bathwater completely. Mm. Though I think that's very normal in early recovery because because you have to relearn how to be in yourself and in the world. Yeah. And you, you know, you are, they say in, in recovery meetings that when you stop whatever substance or behavior you're leaning on, you're left the age you were when you picked it up. And I started drinking when I was 12. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think it's that straightforward, but there is something But a raw in it. self is exposed to the yeah. world. And, yeah. a, and an emotional teenager, I think, is a good way of thinking about it. Because yeah. if you reach for... Um, an addictive process, whatever it might be, instead of learning how to feel your feelings and hold them, mm. um, you you are infantilized by that. You know, it does leave you in a very reactive, volatile, and like childlike state. Yeah. Um. So alongside that, the the sense that there's a kind of truth that you're sort of getting to, or that the the alcohol is masking something, but something in you is trying to convey or signal that something's not right. And it comes back over and over to the idea that the body has this truth. The body is speaking this truth to you that you're ignoring. And I was so interested that all this time you're working on hysteria. So Octavia's writing her PhD and thinking about hysteria and thinking about these hysterics bodies producing symptoms at the same time as having kind of wild bodily experiences yourself, the motorbike accident, the vast eruption of ulcers, the sort of sense that something in you is going, I'm not okay, I'm not okay. Can we talk about, can we talk about what was going on there and especially how that's, whether the PhD helped, whether it distracted? I think the PhD was the unconscious drive towards figuring it out. And I think- Something made you want to do that particular course, subject. Yeah. And I think any academic no matter how cold and distant they might seem from their subject matter, is obsessed with their subject matter deeply psychologically because they need to work something out. Mm. I mean, I, I, I'm speaking for arts PhDs mainly, but everyone <laughs> I know, everyone I was a student alongside, whether they were working on, I don't know, like uh, maternity or mm. trees or whatever, there was always something at the heart of it that was their core psychological drama that they had to get to the bottom of because why else would you sign up to this like extremely lonely difficult boring sometimes frustrated <laughs> library bound life where you earn no money and you can't have any fun and that's not what it's really like I'm being facetious I feel like there's a lot of faces in the room that are like yep we can make this a recovery meeting for the academics it's, I'm very good at leading them I do I refer to myself as a recovering academic um, but I think there's something in it but basically yeah the, 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 I was very very drawn to hysteria because I had always really experienced myself as somebody with an unruly emotional life mm. and an emotional life that I didn't understand, but I desperately wanted to understand. Um, and always just this hypersensitivity to the world that um, sometimes really served me, but a lot of the time put me in positions where I struggled to function as well as the people around me because it's, it's very exhausting. Mm. Um, and it, yeah, I think it was, I sort of began that research feeling quite distant from it because of denial, which is a fascinating psychological experience. Yeah. And the deeper I got into the research, the more it chipped away at the denial. So yeah. I see almost the impulse to explore hysteria was, was kind of the first step in the part of me that wanted to recover yeah making that choice and it that's very much how I felt about it as right. I was reading yeah it kind of knew it couldn't come in I was too um locked off from honest emotional feeling I think it had to come in through intellect because that's how I've always mm. protected myself you know like get enough gold stars be clever enough be fancy enough in that particular way you know mm. through the gates of the university then no one can say you're not surviving or you're not mm. thriving when yeah. actually inside you're absolutely not yeah <laughs> you know it's a messy place yeah and um, then the subject matter is actually just mess chaos disorder yeah. and pain yeah and I'm in the library and you can pretend that that isn't telling you something until the point when you can't anymore exactly and yeah. you have this experience you know I, it's like arriving at the library in the dark in the winter 
getting my huge tomes, the iconography of hysteria, which they have the, you know, the original text. So these huge books from 19th century Paris. And I'm there maybe nine, 10 hours, you know, <laughs> just looking at these women and these and reading about them and reading these male doctors. So, so it's all in French and my French is fine, but it's not, mm. you know, it wasn't totally fluent. So I'm really like, you know, tiny eyes looking at this stuff just it's a very embodied thing my body all tensed up and I'm taking it all on and taking it all in and then going home afterwards and not joining up the dots mm. until I began the process of psychoanalytic psychotherapy which really helped because mm. of course you, you know you have to find a way to welcome your unconscious self mm. alongside your conscious self if you want to understand those drives and where they're taking you. So then this fascinating figure emerges from your research who embodies so much of this journey and process right down to the sort of desire of psychoanalysis which is Louise Bourgeois, the French artist Louise Bourgeois and I found it so interesting that that was the person that you were drawn to and that she is even more than those sort of medical documents about hysteria that she's really trying to grapple with those sort of um, very raw, very unformed, very infantile longings, desires, hatreds that are bedded into the adult self, walled up inside the adult stuff, the self, let's say. Yeah. So can we talk about that? The spiral woman, the femme de maison, yeah. all of the sort of the images and how they felt to you when you first saw them? I think that's exactly it. It's how they felt. So something went off. Yeah. Yeah. Very profoundly because I'd been, you know, reading these male doctors and then I was writing about three specific films, but they were all male directors. I mean, Amadova's queer, but still male, male mm. imaginings of female hysterical characters. Um, and so I wanted a, a female counterpart to run through the thesis. And I'd always, I'd always been drawn to Louise Bourgeois' work. I hadn't sort of considered it very deeply though for a very long time. And when I went back to her, I can't remember which was the first piece I saw again, but it was, I had a physical reaction to it because she's making, whether it's drawings or sculptures or fabric pieces, mm. she's embodying these feelings. It's not an intellectual representation of them. It's coming from the body, it's coming from the spirit. And the force with which she renders primal feelings, I was like, I want that channel. Mm. I, I want to find that channel to render primal feelings in some external way mm. that then can forge connection with others. Because I think when you're trapped inside primal feelings, it can be very lonely mm. because you, you kind of return to that almost pre-verbal childlike state where you're desperately trying to communicate a need, but you have no idea how to make it mm. intelligible to somebody else. So it's just a scream, isn't it really? I mean, yeah. and I do think we all have that in our unconscious selves, just that tiny primal version that's just screaming all the time. Yeah. Um, and Bourgeois, I find her work so deeply fearless and she's so um, delicate in the way she deals with shame almost. She kind of refuses to allow it to be a problem, mm. um, which I By externalizing it, by making it visible, exactly. by making it another artifact that she's exploring. And by making those artifacts take up so much space, even when they're tiny drawings, they are, mm. they're loud, you know? Mm. Um, so there's the spiral woman, who I came across when I was researching her work in the archive at MoMA in New York, which is where the second chapter begins. Um, and it's a drawing of this woman. I mean, she, she represented spirals constantly. She was making spirals all the time. The spiral woman is a woman kind of um, encased in a thick spiral, almost like a boa constrictor. And her head comes out and her feet, and then she's completely like this. And I remember seeing it and thinking, I can't tell if she's protected or if she's smothered. And it spoke to me so deeply that that kind of mm. desire to be smothered by something mm. and how mm. actually it's an ambivalent thing. Like, yeah. you know, when you're a child and you want to be tucked really tight in the bed, yeah. you know, kind of almost restrained. Yeah. And so I was really interested in that. And it seemed to feed into this idea of recovery as somehow freedom, somehow restraint. You have to restrain a part of yourself in order to feel free in another part of yourself mm. or even the whole of yourself. Um, and similarly with the femme maison, the, the housewomen, which the third chapter takes its title from, um, these are images of women where their top half of their bodies are encased in houses. And so it's a, a structure, a building, and then they're naked from the waist down, these women. 
And she made those when she was thinking about um, maternity and motherhood. She was bringing up her children. She was thinking about the role of mother, the role of housewife and how it was it encased her. But she was also interested in how it could be protection, but it could also be smothering. Mm. And I was thinking about that in relation to recovery, which at times felt totally smothering and like it was removing pleasure from my life mm. and other times felt like a refuge. Um, but also in relation to the role of being a carer for my dad, because, you know, caring for Well, you were physically trapped in the house there, yeah. brought back to the childhood home and stuck there. And stuck there. And he's stuck in the prison of his illness. Yeah. But also... And also confined to the home and at one the point where the door is locked against him. So exactly. there is a sense that it becomes very claustrophobic. Yeah, it does. And then at the same time, it gave us this time together mm. that we probably wouldn't have had if he hadn't been ill. And so it had this strange double direction. Um, and I mm. think that, you know, caring for somebody is not something you should expect yourself to go to with a song in your heart every single day. Sometimes you don't want to do it. It's awful. It's painful. It's miserable. It's boring. It's all these things. Also, mm. if you have a relationship that either requires it, demands it, or has room for it, it can be this really profoundly loving um, act that I found mm. changed my life in a really deep way. Mm. Um, and I, I hope made his life easier as he moved towards the end of it. But I had no idea I would have done it. You know, if you'd asked me when I was 26, I, I probably would have sort of been like, yeah, yeah, probably out of obligation. But, you know, I couldn't have mm. imagined the transformative experience that it was for both of us, actually. Mm. So it was a house, but it was, you know. A house in which changes happened yeah. that weren't necessarily negative changes. Yeah. I, I want to talk more about illness, but first of all, I just wanted to touch that the idea that Louise Bourgeois was somebody who was so courageous about shame is interesting because you're very um, alert throughout the book to the sort of dangerous traffic of female abasement and vulnerability and how that works in the memoir. You, um, you describe one story as a silver coin in the confessional economy that thrives on tales of feminine dysfunction. And I was really interested in how you navigated that. I thought you navigated it very skillfully, but did it feel to you that there was a sort of danger in exposing the more raw states or the more potentially shameful situations? It was something I really didn't want to do at all at the beginning. Mm. Um, I was very much more interested in writing about recovery mm. than the chaos of addiction. And, and that was partly because I think ultimately, once you strip away all of the stories, addiction is very monotonous and ultimately quite boring mm. for the person suffering from it, not for the people on the outside, unfortunately, but you mm. know, for them it tends to be very um, destabilizing and, and intense. But for the addict, ultimately, you're just trapped in the same cycle of discomfort, longing for something to change how you feel, reaching for it, hoping it will do the trick, discovering it doesn't do the trick, back in the same discomfort. And that's just it. That's all you've got. With the discomfort proliferating as the drunkenness incites behaviours that themselves produce shame. Exactly. So you get it in that. Yeah. And the spiral reaches the spiral, wider. The spiral, the horrific spiral. Yeah. yeah. It reaches wider every time because the chaos gets bigger and you need more to, yeah. to sort of medicate it. Yeah. Whereas recovery is just living. <laughs> And mm. that has no boundaries on mm. it. Mm. So I thought, you know, that's a more interesting story. But when I started writing about it, and also I should say, like, there's a lot of really brilliant addiction literature out there that gets into the chaos and writes it really well and writes it very compellingly and, and gives a taste of it. And I didn't feel like there needed mm. to be more of that. I didn't feel mm. like my experiences in addiction um, <laughs> were interesting to me, actually. Mm. Um, and I felt politically very strongly that I didn't want to be um, drawn into that place. And I had been approached by editors many, many years ago to write about recovery after writing an essay um, when I was, I was already a couple of years sober, but it was very raw. And I, yeah, <clears throat> can you imagine? And people do. Yeah. You know, yeah, no, no, I know. I feel very skeptical of industry. it. Yeah. yeah. But that because really is producing something that is a recovery that's unfinished and is Absolutely. very raw and very dangerous to do. It is dangerous because it risks putting somebody, I mean, you have no 
skin at that point, mm. or at least I didn't, and neither did many of my friends in recovery. So, yeah, risky. But when I came to write this, I was, I think I was six years sober when it, is that right? Yeah, it must have been when I started. No, I wasn't. Sorry, I'm nearly 10 now, so eight. Anyway, whatever. Around there. So deep into. Deep, deep into it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I felt much more um, comfortable with the strength of my boundaries around what I would and wouldn't do. However, when I started writing it, and this is the really weird thing about writing memoir, you, you then split from your self as the lived experience and the person who survived things to the writer. And obviously the writer's like, is it a good narrative? Is it a good story? Can I hold the reader's attention? And I started writing, I was like, you know what? Like, <laughs> you need some of the crap in there because you need, the reader needs to understand why the recovery was necessary. And actually mm -hmm. as a writer, I was like, okay, I have to go there, but I'm gonna go there in a very controlled way. And I'm gonna call myself and the reader in to the fact that I've had to go there in order for this to be a satisfying story. Because I'm interested in that mm. as a phenomenon anyway. And so I wrote the scene in the motorbike accident, which is very interesting to write it because I'd written it before in a short story many years ago. Um, but it's also something that happened such a long time ago to a young woman who is me, but is also very different to me. And it didn't, it was not hard to write. In fact, it was pleasurable to write. And it was pleasurable because, because of the distance. Because of the distance and because I had no fear about it, actually. When I started writing it, I realized I had no fear. I had much more fear about the later chapters mm. because they are closer to who I am now. And it, mm. I was talking to people about it and I was writing them and they were like, there's nothing in there. I mean, there's stuff in there, but there's not, you know, <laughs> there's nothing to be afraid of in there. There's nothing very confessional in there. And I was like, but it's very close to, mm. to me. And that feels much more like I'm inviting people to sit beside me now. With real fears, with real, yeah. yeah. Um, but the other thing that's interesting about writing about the addictive chaos is, you know, testimony is very crucial to 12-step recovery mm. in particular, but I think recovery in general, telling stories and sharing your experiences, how you make sense of them. And being in active addiction, I've said it's boring, but it's also very confusing because you end, you end up acting in ways that are not... Um, clear to you, let's say, if you're enthralled to the unconscious mind and to the addict mind, which is different from the healthy self, you yeah. find yourself a mystery to yourself, mm. especially if you're experiencing things like blackout and, um, and other stuff like that. So testimony becomes crucial. And in a way, that story was a story I had told many times mm. in meetings. And I talked it through with my therapist. And so it was it wasn't like it was ready to go. The writing of it was different, but it 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 was already um, contained. Mm. Whereas the second half of the book was totally newly expressed in yeah. text, you know? Which I think is part of what's so interesting about the book is that, that that feels quite unusual as a structure because I think often when you're hearing the confessions, it's very raw and you can feel as a reader like, you're handling me material. You're handing me material that hasn't properly been worked through, and it feels very vulnerable. It feels very exposing. Whereas I felt like I was quite confident of your recovery, and then what you were sharing later on felt like a generosity because it felt like you were sort of foursquare in your own life, rather than you're doing your recovery by way of writing the text. That's a relief to hear because I really, I really didn't want it to feel for the reader like um, an emotional dump. Yeah, you know? which it doesn't. Which I, and I think sometimes confessional writing, really confessional writing, it can be extraordinary because it takes you with it in mm. this extremely immediate way. And I really like reading some of that kind of writing. However, I don't go to it when I myself am raw because the boundary is too thin between me and the writing. Mm. And I wanted this to be a book that you could pick up regardless of where you were because really... Mm. Part of the motivation in writing it was that um, addiction is a lonely experience and, and grief is a lonely experience. And I wanted to make something that would be a companion. And if you're hoping for it to be a companion, it can't be something that will then swallow mm. the, the reader. Yeah. I, I think you have achieved that, Octavia. Oh <laughs> I think a companion feels like the right sort of word. It feels like somebody who is saying something from their own perspective and that there's room for the reader, which I, I did feel was a rare thing. Um, I, I, 
as I was reading these parts, though, I was I was thinking about there's a Marguerite Duras quote about the female alcoholic. She says, when a woman drinks, it's as if an animal were drinking or a child. Alcoholism is scandalous in a woman and a female alcoholic is rare, a serious matter. I, want, I wondered what you thought about that. I read it to my husband. He was like, that's very old fashioned. But I don't think she's just saying it's shocking to see a woman drink. I think she's saying something else about what the woman is supposed to be and what it means for the woman to step out of that role into this savage or feral role. Yeah, and I think that is one of the reasons I love drinking and <laughs> one of the things that kept me in it. Mm. I didn't want to be a fucking little lady, you know? <laughs> and so I drank whiskey and mm. it was an easy mm. way or I drank pints of beer. It was an easy way of signaling to the world and specifically to men that I was not going to play that role for them. Mm. Um, and I think this is one of the really complicated things about gender because really it's a house. <laughs> then you don't necessarily live in because you choose it. Mm. You are born inside the house. Mm. And drinking was a way of getting out of the house for me. Mm. Um, and I think when I think about addiction, when I think about uh, how you sort of construct yourself as well, which is, I mean, part of this book is also about just simply growing up. I mean, yeah. it begins when I'm 26 and it finishes seven years later. That's a period of life where, you know, you're a grown up supposedly, but come on. Who's a grown up at 26? You may have a life that looks like very grown up, but emotionally, yeah. you're still so new to the biggest things in life. A lot of people, of course, you know, it depends on your experience and people go through hor horrifically hard things much younger. But I do think on the whole, 26 is not a, not a hugely mature age emotionally, and especially not if you've been an addict for a long time because you stay a baby. Mm. But I think that, you know, the thing about drinking and, and um, addiction as a rebellion is vital to my experience of it because it is a way of checking out and living inside your addictive behavior mm. is a way of checking out when that is drinking or drugs especially. And there is this very intoxicating feeling if you're someone who is rebellious or who's drawn to rebellion of being in that mode where you know you're not doing what's expected of you and you know you're not doing what you're supposed to but when that comes to like being read through the lens of femaleness or femininity mm. it's a double bind really because I already experienced gender as a bit of a trap mm. and then it's a double trap to try and get out of it mm. and actually you know as you said in your lovely intro like this is a book that's interested in freedom mm. I am interested in freedom I still don't know how to get free of that double bind. Mm. Um, I don't think there's a way, actually. Right. Having thought about freedom a lot, I think exactly. that is part of what freedom, the nature of freedom. So there's a there's a phrase in AA which is um, taking a geographical, and it's the alcoholic or the post-alcoholic's <laughs> desire to um, just move out, <laughs> just go on a trip, just go somewhere else. And I think this is a book full of what, in different hands might have been false cures. And what I love about how you handle it is there's the sort of, there's the nature cure. You go through this, like, I'm gonna go on a long walk and there's the solitude, I'm gonna to move to Margate and live on my own. And, you know, you're experimenting with different ways of being, but you don't dismiss any of them out of hand. It's not like I was wrong to do that. Each one sort of actually does have a healing dimension as well as a sort of false cure element. There's, there's something about that that I thought at the centre of your approach, I think, to the, the healing or the recovery journey is this idea that you can come to terms with those damaged parts. You can come to terms with doing the wrong thing. It can be part of who you are rather than feeling like you need to annihilate them, beat them, win out against, which is so often the rhetoric of addiction and recovery. Yeah. I beat that thing. So I wanted you to, as we're sort of moving towards the end of the conversation, to, to talk about what that, what your healing meant to you. Healing, it's such a difficult word to even say in a it room. Is, like it? we're intellectuals, we don't say healing. Yeah, and we certainly don't say journey. And yeah. <laughs> I've just said healing Both journey. Of these things are really don't tell important. anyone. <laughs> but they're real, they're, they're real. real. And that's the thing about this book as well, as I wanted it to be uh, a kind of kick against that internalized snobbery about those things because What's wrong with describing these things as a journey? They are, you move, you are moved and you move. Mm. Um, what's wrong with talking about healing? If you're mm. wounded, you heal. It's mm. 
they've become words that have been hijacked by capitalism, first of all, and yeah. you know, that kind of discourse. Grotesque wellness discourse. Exactly. Yeah. And that takes them away from their sort of spiritual, heartfelt centre. But when you return to that, I think they're extraordinary things to consider. Um, and yeah, I mean, I when I first got into AA meetings, I met a lot of people who had excised parts of themselves falsely because mm. you can't mm. you really can't and like maybe I'm, I'm super Jungian in this respect but I do believe in integration and mm. and and bringing the shadow into the light and all of that and Jung is is in here um but I think you know there are things about the addict self that are kind of remarkable and I don't regret having met my addict self and I and mm. I feel her now still and I live with her mm. um she's a pain in my ass sometimes let's be real but <laughs> she's also energetic mm. and um hungry motivated full yeah, of desires yeah and desire mm. is a wonderful thing to feel when it doesn't tip you over into something dangerous or threatening mm. and I think there was a period of time in recovery which is very common where I became afraid of desire mm. of all desire I was writing about it in my thesis but I was afraid of it in myself mm. and that didn't feel like freedom either mm. um, but the process of but perhaps necessary yeah totally necessary in order to kind of redraft the terrain and then you know the goal that I had in mind once I felt less threatened by it was uh, uh, freedom and peace, I guess. And mm. peace within yourself involves not fearing any part of yourself. And that's mm. like a very long journey, truly, to acceptance. Mm. But acceptance feels a lot more like freedom to me than anything else. And that's kind of where I landed with it. Mm. So, it, as Dr. Davis sort of suggested, that there are these parallel narratives in the book that there's the sense of you coming out of addiction as your father's descending into dementia and you write about it so movingly. And one of the things that I was very interested by was what it was actually like to go through the process, not just of writing about that emotionally, but of translating that experience of somebody losing language into language, the sense that he's living in this sort of, um, disordered reality in which past and present and future are kind of bleeding into each other or have vanished to put that into an orderly narrative what was what was that like did that feel like restorative work in itself it was something that really strongly needed to be told I think is the only way I can describe it I found it such a I found it such a fascinating thing to be a part of and I know that might sound weird and clinical but I think mm. I think when something very frightening and very painful is happening, it's useful to find what's interesting about it. Mm. That's a, a tool that I use when I can, because there, there is always something of kind of spiritual and psychological value. And life is very hard and painful mm. at times for everybody. And we mustn't shy away from that fact. And again, that comes back to acceptance and accepting that you know the, the the highs and the lows are all part of the package at all times um and finding a way to put that particular experience into words was a way of um i needed to make a record of it i, I needed yeah. to pin it down somehow yeah because driven by the sense that something was not being pinned down and was losing the losing. sense of being able to be pinned altogether yeah, yeah. and also because it was something that is so common. I mean, dementia is so common in families and it will be more and more common. I mean, they say, you know, that the, the rates mm. of dementia are just kind of going up and up the longer we live. Millennials are apparently going to be demented, all of us. So, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think it's something that, um, I think it's something that also I felt very strongly that we live in this culture that is in very like profound denial about end of life and yeah. about loss of vitality and that we think about it or the culturally endorsed way of thinking about it is um, that it's something we should bury and, and ignore and actually it is not it's something we should embrace and why don't we create a culture that welcomes it that that 
can allow people to relax into the end of their life because I, I mean this mm. now sounds like a bit because I've said it in a couple of other conversations but I'm gonna do the bit anyway <laughs> the one thing we all have in common is that we will die <laughs> and that as we approach death we will need the help of other people mm. and we will need to be cared for the way we were cared for when we were children so I wanted to to put that on the page because I want people to stop being in denial about it yeah. and afraid of it yeah this is probably my last question because I think we're getting towards the point when you guys can start asking questions. But And this might be something that you don't want to answer at all. I was sort of tentative about it as I was writing it down. But the, the book ends with your father's death and he dies in a care home during lockdown. It's a, it's a deeply moving section. I found it very harrowing to read. I wondered how you feel about that politically now. I wonder how you feel politically. Are people asking you this? No, no one's asked me this, but I'm glad you I'm going to ask you this, yeah. but you don't have to answer it. Do it. I mean, how do you feel about lockdown and care homes and what happened? How do you feel about the revelations of Downing yeah. Street? Yeah. yeah. Should we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Should we end with that? Make it on the soapbox. <laughs> Let's Vote them the out. Soapbox. Great. Vote them out. I mean, I feel like I need to say that in this room. Um, if anyone was going to vote them in, please leave. <laughs> no, you don't have to. It's a broad church. Um, I, yeah, furious. Very, very angry. I'm glad I Actually, um, I wrote a piece about it for the Sunday Times when my father was still alive and he was in the nursing home and we'd been through one of the lockdowns and writing that piece was the precursor to, to writing about that in the book. Before yeah. he became ill, the book was going to end on my seventh sobriety birthday, which happened during lockdown and it was this nice, neat way of tying it up. Yeah. And then he got COVID and then he died. And I realized that to tell the true story, it would need to be there. I didn't want to put his death in as an epilogue because that goes against everything I believe about not mm. being in denial about it. Mm. But also, you know, this book has politics. Mm. All books have politics to it, to them. But, the, you know, this is a political book mm. in my mind. I didn't want it to be... Uh, I didn't want it to be a, a treatise at the end, but the inclusion of that scene is there for a reason because mm. I was not alone in that experience. It happened to thousands of people. And the people who speak to me when they hear mm. I've written about it here after writing about it in the paper, the stories are legion and they are heartbreaking and this government must not get away with what they did. I feel incredibly strongly about that. Yeah. Um, and I think the revelations coming out now, I mean, I found I have to put a, a bit of a protective jacket on. Um, I don't read all of them, you know, small things like um, reading about the Downing Street parties and things like that, you know. Fucking wheelie case full of booze. Yeah, it, it really, it really wakes up a, a very powerful rage in me um, that is energizing. <laughs> Oh my God! Well, but the timing really I did know. work pretty well. We're about to incite revolution, basically. <laughs> um, but no, just to sort of end on that, I think that um, I think that stories of of what people endured in the pandemic must mm. be committed to literature. They must be included mm. in literature. I think that there is this complicated feeling about the pandemic now. You know, COVID's still out there. I have friends who are immunocompromised who still can't live normal lives. Like, mm. we like to pretend it's over, but it's really not. Um, we don't want to read about it. We don't want to think about it. Mm. We must. It's part of our life. Um, and actually, reading reading those last pages, it really felt to me like this is probably my first experience of reading something that I think I'll be reading a lot over the next 10 years maybe decades in the same way that AIDS crisis literature right. didn't necessarily all come at the moment, but kept exactly. coming and kept coming. And I think those COVID stories and what people went through and the nuances of that are going to be, yeah. are going to be emerging out. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to open the floor out. There's a mic coming around. So if you put your hand up, just wait for the mic to come. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I was just wondering um, if there were any writers you were really influenced by in the writing of your memoir and if you had any um, like particular like memoirs themselves that you felt really drawn to in the writing of. Um, first off, I'd say Blueberries by Elena Savage, which is uh, both essays, memoir and essays. Um, she's a wonderful writer and thinker. She, uh, she asks her essays so beautifully and she is a writer who thank you um who brings the intellectual alongside the emotional and and sort of lived and puts them all together which is my favorite writing um Deborah Levy was also a very big influence because of how oh did I tap it oh dear it's me tossing my hair around um vanity will be the end of us all in the end um yeah, Deborah Levy definitely, because um, I feel like whenever I read Deborah Levy's books, I'm like, Deborah Levy's put my brain on the page <laughs> mm. because of that way of experiencing life in very sensual vignettes. And she's a writer who really explores that. So she was in my mind a lot. Um, also, I read a book, um, The Memoirist Mem- Mary Carr, um, who's a very different kind of writer. She's doing something very different in her memoirs, but she wrote a brilliant book called The Art of Memoir, which is shit hot and um the other one I turned to was Melissa Phoebus I don't know if you've come across her work she's an American writer um she's written several memoirs about her life she's also a recovering addict um but she wrote this brilliant book called Bodywork the radical potential of personal narrative I think or the radical power of personal personal narrative that's amazing like Mary Carr's book it's kind of a, a memoir in um uh what's the word I'm looking for handbook uh it's it's like a lesson basically but she uses bits of memoir writing to explore the points and and kind of show you what she's trying to do really rad yeah no problem yes mike coming um hello um god i hate asking questions but um i I had the pleasure of reading your book. I really loved it. I got sent a proof and um, I thought it was really brilliant book. Um, as an alcoholic myself, and I've been six years in recovery, and my dad also died of Alzheimer's. Uh, I was doing a geographical in America at the time, and um, which was really difficult. But one of the things you said when you were being interviewed, that you almost saw drinking as an act of rebellion. And one of the things that I've really struggled with in AA is the notion that alcoholism is a disease. And I wonder what you thought about that, whether, because, I mean, I um, I kind of, I grapple with the idea that it's caused by trauma or that it's caused by personality. I mean, nobody in my family is an alcoholic. I spent a lot of time in hospital when I was a child. And I just wondered kind of what you thought about that. Um, My thoughts about it have changed a lot over time. When I first got sober, the idea that it was a disease made a lot of sense to me um, because of what that means about personal responsibility. And, you know, everybody gets sick. If you get sick, it's not your fault. So that was very appealing. I think the disease model gets used in ways that are very restrictive by um, addiction recovery and the kind of recovery machinery you know like the industry basically of rehabs and things like that I never went to rehab but I know lots of people who came through rehabs where the disease model was like very uh, oppressively insisted upon um I mean in my personal experience and as as being a recovering person and knowing a lot of recovering people I think it's different for everybody honestly 
And I think the most important thing is how you as a recovering person relate to the idea and whether it serves your recovery or not. Um, you know, there was no catastrophic trauma in my life at all, but I was always deeply sensitive and couldn't really cope <laughs> with the world without something to help me. Um, and I found in AA when I first went, the fact that the, the general consensus was, don't obsess about why, think about how to get well and like put your attention into kind of the, the, the mode of recovery. I found that very useful and very helpful. But I think if, if, if you're a person with great trauma in your past and that the addictive behavior is related to that, that's probably not very helpful because if you've survived trauma, I think it, 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 it can be a good idea to kind of pursue that and, and understand it. So I think it is different for everybody. Um, and honestly, I don't think about it very much at all anymore because I feel very distant from the experience of addiction. I don't feel distant from my addict, but I feel very distant from what I would have understood as the disease of addiction. Does that make sense? Thank you for your question. Probably have time for one more question. So I was wondering, just to go back to what you were saying about the relationship between journaling and memoir, um, as the timeline of the book and your life got closer together at the end, do you kind of continue journaling and how did that change? So kind of two-part question. Um, how did that change the relationship to kind of the subject matter and what you were writing about as kind of the two timelines merged towards the end? And also, I guess I'm wondering, um, having presumably started journaling at kind of a much younger age, how that kind of affects your experience of then later writing a memoir and also kind of the way of like processing the world like do you think that kind of the taking the sort of experiences and kind of forming them into linguistics or strands and patterns that's something that kind of yeah I guess like affected your the way that you experience things in life in general earlier on and then later the memoir as well great question um yes is my answer <laughs> um definitely I I started writing a journal of sorts as soon as I could write basically um, and I think that it is a practice that shapes the way you notice um, I also ever since I was a child was like profoundly superstitious and superstition also leads you to notice things in a specific in a sort of particular way and I think if you have a superstitious mind I also think by the way that the superstitious mind and the addict mind are very intertwined <laughs> Because again, it's all about this sort of magical thinking and um, it's, it's a sort of mad faith in a way, right? Like I still salute a magpies and... Defending and warding off. Yeah, exactly. And if, and really, you know, I, I've always found the God stuff in AA quite complicated, but I don't find the idea of higher power complicated at all. I salute at magpies. I obviously believe in something bigger than me. <laughs> um, but I think that superstitious mind always taught me or, sh or kind of instructed me to look for messages in the world and look for symbols. And this is a book that's full of, I, I don't know if I would call them symbols, but motifs, right? And that is true to my psychological experience of the world. I've always found little motifs that uh, um, have meaning probably just to me, maybe not to everybody else. Um, and so, yes, that I think is a way of being that was very shaped by writing things down because of course, when you write something down, you reinforce it. So if I say, you know, always on the 5th of May, I see my first forget-me-not. Then on the 5th of May, I'm always looking for my first forget-me-not. It's very simple. And then I have my little system of belief and then it carries me through. Um, when it came to writing the later parts of the book, it's a really interesting question, the relationship between journaling then and that. Um, I think uh, I was writing it in the pandemic. So, um, my journaling then was very different to the journaling of when I was out in the world more um, because life was so small and we were all so much more interior. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say actually the interaction because I haven't gone back and read those bits since kind of constructing them into the book. But I think, um, I mean, Certainly when I was younger, I would write my journals in very kind of self-consciously crafted prose and full sentences and tiny little handwriting. I mean, I look at them now, I'm like, what were you, it's so uptight, like very tiny little handwriting. And now it's like one word here, three words there, it's all over the place, it's an impression. 
Um, sometimes it's a full sentence, sometimes it's a full kind of written prose for four pages, but it's much less rigid, I guess. Um, and actually the final chapter of this book, once I came to write it, I wrote it very, very fast because I was living it almost in real time, not really, but almost. It was so mm. at my fingertips. But the other thing was, one of the things I found the most kind of interesting and also challenging in this book was, was maintaining the voice all the way through. I wanted to write a book in the voice that I used to speak. Also, it's a construction, right? Um, but by the time I got to the last chapter, the voice was just here. She was right here and it kind of came um, very fluidly. Um, so yeah, I would be interested to go back and look in my journals now and see what it's like. Maybe there'd be this weird other alternative self will have appeared. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, it's a really good question. I've forgotten how we end events. <laughs> oh, Taper, it's just a joy talking to you. It's such a, it, for all the sort of harrowing material in this book, it felt very joyful and it felt like it had that kind of energy that I, I so associate with you. So Octavia is going to be signing um, her books. Everyone must buy multiple copies and give them to their friends. And thank you all so much. And Octavia, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.